You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking to our learning stuff and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. And of course, I will answer as many as I can, or, or you can go to our webpage at Let's Talk Torah.net. That's Let's Talk Torah.net. And you can go to the archives, the new shows, leave comments, leave questions, and of course, the all important donate button. We have different levels, so you can help the show, help us grow, help us cover our costs over here. Whatever you do is greatly appreciated. You want to be anonymous, you want to shout out everything, there's a spot to type it in. And I hope you'll help us out. And of course, in advance, I do thank you. This evening, and for that price tomorrow, is called Purim Katon. means small Purim. It's kind of funny because it's small Purim. It's actually, this year in the calendar, there's two months called Adar. Adar is the last month in the Jewish calendar as when we start from the Passover month of Nisan and we go through the 12 months and we get to Adar. But because the Jewish calendar is lunar-based, but we fix it to make sure that the months, the seasons, stay the same. So Passover is coming out in the spring, and and the Sukkot holiday is coming out in the fall. So to keep the lunar calendar um, working with the seasons, so every two or three years, usually three years, this time it happens to be two years, we have to add a month to the calendar, and that's the month of Adar. So there's when there's Adar 1 and Adar 2, what do you do with Purim? So some people, of course, would love to just have Purim twice, right? Purim costumes, food, meals, get-togethers, fun, graggers, reading the Megillah, giving food packages, charity, all that good stuff. As much as we would love to do it twice... It's pushed off to the second Adar. But the fact of the matter is, we do some type of celebration on the first Adar as well. We call it Purim Katan. Officially, there's no none of the commands, none of the rabbinic commands that exist on the actual Purim holiday. But it's still a holiday. So that means we're supposed to have added joy, um, probably added Torah study, um, added just being together with friends, just getting together, being happy, remembering how God saved us, all that good stuff. And that actually starts tonight. Um, you know, I teach third grade. So third grade is a little young that I allow them to go overboard because, you know, you got to... You got to keep them in check. 
but I know stuff is going on in school tomorrow. Tomorrow will be a, you know, like a pretend fun day. Like we won't go overboard. We won't let the children, you know, like run around wild. But I'm sure we'll find some things to keep everybody happy, entertained, and of course safe. So this week's Torah portion <clears throat> is the Torah portion of Titzave. Uh, this Torah portion really is all focused on the Kohanim, on the priests. We're going to talk about their vestments, their garments. We're going to talk about the inauguration sacrifices they had to bring. We'll even talk about the the spices and the golden altar, which was in the tabernacle. All these things really circle, connect to the priests, the Kohanim. But at the beginning of the Torah portion, we talk about the olive oil. So Moses has commanded that you will make pure olive oil. I explained to my class. I mean, you go to the store, everything says pure, virgin, olive oil. It's not the pure we're referring to over here. I don't even know if the process is exactly the same, but olives are fascinating. My family happens to like olives. They're a little bitter. Um, but you can't, it's not like a grape or an orange, right, where you squeeze it and you get out juice. So how do you get out olive oil? So you have, there's a process. You, you, you sort of have to let the olives sit and spoil and become soft. And you have them in containers and, and you have to turn them over and there's a process. And then um, you, you'll cut them up a little bit and let them spoil some more and eventually put them into a press. And you, there's the first time around where you press and that'll be the very pure oil. That first, those first drops that come out. And then we're going to press it harder. We're going to chop it up again. And we're going to let it spoil more. We're going to press it some more. And then there'll be a third process. In the Talmud, there were, in those days, there was like three separate times they went through the press. I don't know what with modern technology. Maybe they can get the oil out and process it. I'm sure they do different. But the, the gist is the same, that that the Torah wants pure olive oil. And we always talk about, you think about it, this pure olive oil is for lighting the menorah. Now, if you were, if you had an olive farm, or you lived in those days where you used olive oil to light and olive oil to cook, your, your best olive oil is going to go into your cake, into your bread, because you don't want any little pieces or anything. The olive oil you're using for lights, okay, who cares if there's some pieces in the, in the cup, right? The oil's going to burn. But the Torah is really just the opposite. The Torah says that for the menorah, for the, right, for the candelabra, for the menorah, we want the most pure oil. So the verse says you're going to have this pure oil, and the verse says, Laha'alos ne'er tamid, to bring up a constant flame. So they explain, and I don't know if you ever lit candles, right? but sometimes you're like, you could touch the wick and then pull away the candle, and it sort of you know, sputters and flickers and eventually catches into a flame. Or... You just hold the match by the wick until it's totally engulfed. 
So the Torah wants lahalos neitamid to bring up a constant flame. So they say like this, very beautiful. It's symbolic of teachers. The idea is we're not just educating and hoping they catch on. Right? The idea is the flame we as teachers have to not only put the fire to the flame, we have to wait till that wick is engulfed in flames. The Chavetz Chaim explains like this. Parents raise children and send them off to camp, send them off to school and high school and and further. And, and many parents will say, look, I raised my child, I raised a healthy child, uh, I, I, I educated him, I paid for his tutors, and now I'm going to send him off and he'll be fine. That, the Chavetz Chaim says, is a terrible mistake. Imagine for a second... You have a pot on the fire, and you're boiling up the water. This morning, my wife was uh, had the chicken soup on the fire. It is bubbling away. All of a sudden, it's bubbling away, which probably means either the flame is too high or something has to happen. So, of course, I don't know what to do. So I, I, I call back, and I say, you know, the soup is really bubbling. So she says, just take off the cover a little bit. Sure enough, you take off the cover, and the bubbles go down, or the steam has a place to escape, and the soup is cooking. If you take that pot off the fire, yes, it's going to be boiling hot. Right? You can't eat that soup. Right? could be 20 minutes later in the pot, you still can't eat that soup. But it's going to cool down. While the fire is not changing. That fire is burning hot. So it's not good enough that I, I trained my children to, whether it's Torah study, commands, good deeds, how they act, it's not good enough that my children are like the soup in the pot and I'm the fire underneath them because that cools off. What you need is that the children become the fire. You have to ignite that fire that it's totally engulfed, that the child becomes the fire. The child has that, that excitement, that emotion, that drive, that determination, that the then that child is ready to go off because he's the fire, or she, right? He or she are the fire. So I think it's just like a, just a start out here, just a, an amazing lesson of of how we're supposed to look at this olive oil. So I saw recently um, Moses was commanded, the language which you're going to talk about, the language in this Torah portion is fascinating. It's, it's like talking to Moses. You, Moses, are commanded to make pure oil. Why Moses? Just... The Jewish people are commanded, wh wh whosever job it is to make the oil, that's the person in charge. So Moses, you find the guy and make the oil. But the language of the verse says that Moses is the one that's commanded to make the oil. Why? So this, we've got to go back a little bit. And Yochayim Shalavitz explains like this. When Moses was commanded to go down to take out the Jewish people from Egypt, right? Moses is talking to God by the burning bush. 
and Moses commanded, you go down and you speak to Pharaoh and you're going to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. So Moses uh, was giving God a hard time. And the final reason that Moses gives why he's not the guy is because his older brother, Aaron, is the leader of the Jewish people in Egypt. Moses says, I can't mosey on in and push my brother out of the way. How could I do that to my brother? He'll be all insulted. So the verse says God got angry. God's anger burned in Moses. The the Talmud discusses there's no punishment. Where's the punishment? Generally, when it says God's anger burned, there's some type of punishment. Where is God's punishment to Moses? So one one person says, one Amir says, no punishment. The the other one says there is a punishment. Because it says, God says, I know your brother. Aaron the Levite, meaning you, Moses, were supposed to be the high priest, which means all future priests, the whole, they're not a tribe, but the whole family of Kohanim, the whole family of priests is coming from your children, you, Moses, and your children. Instead, all the priests are now going to come from Moses' brother. So that's the punishment. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big punishment. So interesting enough, you can look at it that they're both right. It's, yes, a punishment, and it's not a punishment. It says that Aaron, that one of the things that God was unhappy with Moses about this statement was he didn't recognize, he didn't realize that, that Aaron, his brother, would be so happy for him. Moses was concerned his brother wouldn't be happy for him, and in truth, Aaron was, the verse says, He'll be happy. Aaron was tremendously happy for Moses. But you know what? Moses was tremendously happy for his brother Aaron. When Moses has the opportunity and he's going to help inaugurate his brother Aaron, he has to anoint him with oil. And Moses was so happy. He was, it was like a burning joy. Yes, he lost the priesthood. But at the same time, he, he, He's so happy for his brother. He's so happy as if he was anointing himself. These are the two amazing brothers, Moses and Aaron, that each one is totally, completely happy for the other one when the other one has success. Aaron is happy for Moses. He's the leader. Moses is happy for Aaron that all priests come from him, that he's the high priest. So I was like this. So God says to Moses, you prepare the oil. Because God knows. God says, I know you're going to be so happy for your brother that I need you to prepare the oil so when your brother Aaron goes to light the menorah, it's as if you're lighting the menorah. It's all part and parcel. What an amazing lesson to learn about these two fantastic brothers. Here, look around. You hope that brothers can be happy for each other. And I think sometimes we hope, at least on the outside, they're happy. Inside, why did my brother get this? I deserve it. How come uh, How come he always gets? How come not me? I mean, it's sibling rivalry, right? We, we know how brothers are, right? Even if they're happy for each other, but are they, are they really totally committed? That level of total, um, I mean, happiness is the word, right? That I am 
with no, no, I don't want to say ulterior motives. That's the word for later. There, there's nothing that I feel, no jealousy, no pangs of, of desire that I have when my brother is successful and my brother should have no, no qualms that I am having success. That's, that's really a, 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 it's just the imagination that such a thing is possible. Right, because we all uh, we all want that we think we're the best and we deserve everything, and yeah, I find when families have to take care of uh, of uh, of wills and stuff like that, and how come he got this and how come she got that, and and there's fights, and and as soon as the parents wanted to give some charity, all of a sudden the kids are running and saying no, the 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 parents wasn't all with it when when they were giving away that uh, charity. Right? Family is a lot of fighting. It's terrible. It's terrible. If they knew how much the deceased parent suffers when there's, when there's infighting because of a few dollars here, a few dollars there. It's, uh, but at least to uh, look up to Moses and Aaron and understand what the pinnacle, what, what it means to be brothers. That's what it means. So the interesting, we're talking about the beginning of the Torah portion. So I told you it says that you are commanded. You don't really find this language. You are commanded. Every time God wants to tell Moses a new command, it's very simple. God says, it says, God spoke to Moses saying, that verse comes up a hundred times, 200 times. I have no idea how many times. God spoke to Moses saying over and over and over, not you are commanded. What happened to Moses' name? What happened? God spoke to Moses. What happened? So from the beginning of the book of Exodus, the beginning of Parashimos, when Moses is born, through the book of Exodus, through the book of Leviticus, through the book of Numbers, Moses is mentioned in every single Torah portion, all of them. When we get to the last book, Moses is doing a lot of the talking, so he's not always mentioned. Most of those Torah portions, but not all. Except for this week's Torah portion. The Torah portion of Tetzaveh does not have Moses' name mentioned at all. Where did this come from? What happened? So what happened was that in next week's Torah portion, um, when God, when Moses is praying to God and telling God, if you destroy the Jewish people, erase me from your Torah. So the fact of the matter is that Moses said to God, erase me from the Torah. So when, when great people say things, sometimes even not great people, but when great people say things, it, it causes a reaction. So God said, okay, I got to erase Moses from the Torah. Not the whole Torah, but from one Torah portion. And God chose this week's Torah portion, the Torah portion of Tetzat. So the question is, why this week? So the Vilna Gon says a most famous answer he says that the yard site, the, right, the anniversary of Moses' death, which is the seventh day of Adar, almost always, not always, but almost always falls in this week. Happens to be it was last week Friday. <clears throat> it was last week Friday. So this year it happens to be it didn't work out. But since most years... It comes out in this week's Torah portion, or in a year like this, it comes out a day or two earlier. This is the Torah portion without Moses' name. But I saw 
some other beautiful answers. And I really talked about this at the beginning of the show. We said, really, Moses was, really, Moses should have been the high priest. He should have been the Kohen Gadol. Why did he lose it? Because he said to God, I don't want to insult my brother Aaron. He should take out the Jewish people. He should go to Pharaoh. So God gets angry, and Moses loses the, the opportunity to be the high priest. This is the Torah portion. This is the very Torah portion of priests. We're going to learn about all their garments that they wear. We're going to learn about the inauguration um, sacrifice they bring. And we're even going to talk about this special altar, the golden altar, which was a sacrifice of spices, which only, only the Kohanim brought. And it seems it was like their private sacrifice. So Moses, you're not going to be the priest. Priests are not coming from you. This Torah portion really has nothing to do with you. Right? So since this Torah portion, either, either you lost out on being the priest or this Torah portion has nothing to do with your family, it makes sense that this is the Torah portion. Your name doesn't belong. So there's... It's the, the, the Torah portion begins after it talks about the oil. It says you're going to make these vestments, these garments for Aaron and his sons for honor and for beauty because the whole point... The whole point of these garments, not the whole point, but one of the points is that the, when you would walk into the temple and you'll see the priests working and you see the high priest there, they, they are royalty. They are regal. These clothes were beautiful. We're not exactly used to them, and interesting enough, we're not 100% sure what all of them look like, but there's, the, there's going to be long linen shirts and there's going to be these linen, some type of turban. It depends how they wrapped it. And there's going to be, um, for the high priest, there's going to be this blue type of robe. And then he's going to have it tied around with a backwards apron. And there's going to be the breastplate with the different uh, jewels on it. And he's going to have that uh, gold plate by his forehead with God's name on it. Total regal. You'll go to the temple. You'll see the priests walking around. You'll You'll... Just looking at them is the beginning of the inspiration. And the God's presence is there. It's more inspiration. And it's interesting that, that each of these garments, each of these vestments, um, were actually had a specific purpose. They, they, were, they were to help in the forgiveness of different sins. The apron, I'm calling it an apron. It's called the aphod. The apron, I always look at it as a backwards apron. It is fascinating. The Torah gives details, but not a lot of details. So Rashi, the story goes that Rashi was trying to figure out what it looked like. Now, you have a few verses, but there's really nowhere where it says what it looked like. And then all of a sudden Rashi says, it looks like the this apron that when women would ride a horse... Uh, they would wear this this type of garment. Again, this is like long, backwards apron tied in front. Right? You think the apron's tied in the back, there's an apron tied in front. Why does Rashi say that? It's out of character. 
So they say that Rashi didn't know what it was. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this lady is riding on a horse and she's wearing this apron and Rashi notices and he says, okay, I, I don't know um, I don't know what the apron's supposed to look like, but God's sending me a message. Must be. This is what the apron looks like. Now, this ap- it's, that was only one part of the apron. Really, the other part was the breastplate, which will be tied and chained to this whole apron. And as I guess the chest part is the what we call the choshen. The choshen was, um, was again, was a take a rectangle, fold it in half. We're going to put 12 settings with 12 different stones. Each stone will have one of the tribe's names written on it. And, of course, there goes the music. We're going to have to finish later. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all the wonderful sponsored listeners. I can't do it out to you. Thank you for the production team. We have Alan in the back. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sue Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house we can build every room.